Hello and welcome to the RHA podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and today's guest is Kathy Hirschfeld, former executive director of BP Australasia and non-executive director. Well, welcome back to the RHA podcast. It's great to have you along today, and I'm really looking forward to bringing this conversation to you with Kathy. I'm very keen to have a much greater representation of female guests on the Arate podcast, particularly those who have successfully moved from an executive to a non-executive or portfolio career. And so if you know people who may have an appetite to participate, I'd love to hear from them. And the conversation with Kathy is a, a really interesting one. She's a great lady with some very interesting stories to tell. Before we get into me formally introducing Kathy, let me introduce myself to those who have not listened to the podcast before. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy solutions for senior executives and directors who are actively looking for a new role. So if we could be of any assistance to you, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you about our various services. Anyway, let me get on now and introduce to you Kathy Hirschfeld. Kathy Hirschfeld was born in Brisbane, Australia, and after completing a Bachelor of Chemical Engineering in 1982, she worked for approximately 20 years with BP, which saw her working for them in Australia, the UK, Turkey, and then for the culmination of her career with BP back in Brisbane in a combined role of Managing Director and Refinery Manager for the BP Bulwer Island Refinery and Executive Director for BP Australasia. In 2010, she exited BP and moved into a portfolio career, which has seen her hold non-executive roles with InterOil Corporation, Tox Free Solutions, both listed organisations. She's also a board member with UN Women in Australia and a senator with the University of Queensland. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Kathy Hirschfeld. Well, hi, Kathy. Welcome to the Aratek Podcast. Lovely to have you along on a beautiful Monday, Brisbane winter's morning. Uh, it's been a fantastic weekend. Uh, did you have a good time? Um, I had an interesting time. I went to the Reds game on Friday night. Right. Which was, it was still fun being there and watching the Chiefs was pretty amazing. But okay. disappointing result. Right. We got completely thrashed. Oh, really? And Kathy, for those people who are interested, is the number one ticket holder for the Queensland Reds, which I understand uh, you uh, bid for in a charity event. Yes, at the Reds Gala Ball right. each year. Uh-huh. And what inspired you to uh, want to hold that? Um, I really enjoy going to the rugby and I find that going to the Reds games particularly, they make you feel part of the yep. the part of the team. Sure. And it's something I've really enjoyed. So oh, I was you? really looking for a way to support them. And you uh, go to the away games as well or just the local? Some of the away games. I went to the Brumbies game okay. uh, last weekend in Canberra, right. which was freezing. <laughs> and Very we, good. I got beaten. All right. Well, Cathy, uh, just to begin with, perhaps um, why don't you let us know about your current range of professional responsibilities? Mm -hmm. So I'm a non-executive director currently of Tox Free Solutions, which is a waste services company, okay. yep. hazardous and industrial waste. Mm -hmm. Um, I was recently, until recently, I was also a non-executive director for Broad Spectrum mm -hmm. until they were bought by Ferrovial okay. and Interoil, who uh, are listed in New York, headquartered in Singapore and do um, exploration in okay. PNG. Right. And I stepped down from that board last month. They're currently uh, under offer from Oil Search and okay. probably Exxon. So okay. it's... Uh, the, you know, that's going to finish up in the next right. couple of months anyway for, okay. for the other directors. So you uh, felt it was uh, time to step out prior to one of those transactions happening? 
Uh, they wanted to reduce the number okay, of directors. Sure. And I guess I drew the short straw. So, uh-huh. yeah. so you've gone from three, I imagine, quite busy boards to one now. Yes. And uh, and what other things are you up to? So I'm also on the Senate of the University of Queensland. Uh-huh. And I'm a, a, on the board of UN Women okay. Australian National Committee, okay. uh, which is the UN's uh, gender equity right. body, okay. uh, global gender equity body, yeah. um, and where they're representatives in Australia. And, okay. and the, ro- the role of UN Women in Australia is to raise funds to go to projects in our region. Right. So and that, what sort of projects do you mean? Well, um, I actually was able to visit uh, one of the projects in Papua New Guinea okay. when I was in Port Moresby last year. They, uh, they've um, funded... Um, refurbishment of the markets so the marketplaces were not a safe place for women to actually be and you mean uh, like a produce market yes right yeah so the women would often travel uh for a long time you know they might travel all day on sunday with their produce get to the market and then they would stay at the market all week okay and then travel home at the at the end of the week with Mm -hmm. what little money they had Mm -hmm. they used to they have to pay um a certain amount as sort of fees for the stall um in the past those fees would go to somebody who would come around and collect them, right. but they never went into okay. back into the market. Mm-hmm. Into so there were, there were no toilets, there were no showers, there mm. were no no security, mm. nowhere for the kids to play, and often the the women would have their kids with them. Okay, there would be a lot of men who were either drunk or chewing betel nut, um, and so it wasn't a safe place, mm-hmm. and the women were not able to earn mm-hmm. the money to. Okay support their children. Right. Um, so now uh, the market I visited was clean. There was a, a very nice ablutions block mm-hmm. that had a security guard okay. on the entrance. Okay. So he made sure who was going sure. in and out. Yeah. It was a huge playground that was built by a local member of parliament, okay. um, which was the kids just adored. Uh-huh. Um, there was shade and, there were, and the women were at all the stalls rather than in the past, all the men would be sitting Right. At the stalls in the shade and the women would be sitting out okay. on the dirt. Right. In the, and so who yeah. um, maintains it? Uh, now that it's all been brought up to a good standard, they, you, there are staff that stay there as part of the project? There, there aren't uh, UN staff, right. but the, the project was done in partnership with the local government. Right. So okay. it is um, monitored and, and okay. will continue to be. Yeah, I've, I've been to PNG a few, few times, and I think one of the things I found amazing was you drive along the street, uh, you know, the main sort of roads, and there's just people walking everywhere, yeah. uh, up and down, carrying, as you say, their baskets of uh, yeah. food and so on, which we don't see in Australia at all. So, yeah. but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's certainly not a place for the faint-hearted, is it? It is not. No. no. And so, how did you originally get involved with the uh, the UN then? I had been to the International Women's Day breakfasts okay. at the uh, Entertainment Centre yeah. uh, a number of times and found them incredibly inspiring. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to get involved. And I okay. contacted one of the board members and who I'd met through something else and said, you know, I'm interested in right. getting involved. Okay. She happened to be going on maternity leave and said, well why don't you come and fill my spot while sure. I'm away? Okay. So that's how it happened. And then I got elected to the board about 18 months after that. And is that for a fixed term? or It's uh, up to six years. Okay. You get re-elected every three years. Okay, right. So. And what does it mean to be uh, on the Senate of the University? Uh, the Senate of the University is um, that's something that's special to me because it's been in my family history. Okay. Um, my great-grandfather was on the first senate right in 1910 okay. no 19 oh i can't remember the date now oh, well, yeah okay. yeah i think it was 1910 <laughs> sorry and um and then my grandfather was chancellor of the university right and his brother was on the senate right and his daughter his brother's daughter was on the senate uh-huh. and now i'm so i'm the fifth okay. hirschfeld on the right. senate of the university so the Senate is the governing body that works with the Vice-Chancellor sure. and reviews the, the strategy mm-hmm. and um, the ensures we have the appropriate governance mm-hmm. around finances sure. and risk management mm-hmm. and things like that. Okay. So I imagine uh, uh, conversations around the Christmas table with your family would have been quite interesting then. 
Um, yes. Well, although my, my grandfather was dead before I was born, right. so I never met him. Mm-hmm. Um, and Uncle Conrad died quite a few years ago. So okay. I remember him as an eccentric uncle. Uh, I didn't, we didn't really, uh, I was too young to have those sure. sort of conversations. But certainly uh, Mary Marnie, my dad's cousin who right. was on the Senate, she and I used to uh, talk quite a lot about what was going on and okay, okay. what we could be doing. Right. And then the other thing you haven't spoken about so far is uh, I understand you also are involved in coaching CEOs. That's correct, yes. Yeah. So I'm working with um, American Co, mm-hmm. um, who uh, they call it mentoring, I call it coaching uh, but of executives and it's right. CEO to CEO mm-hmm. uh, and it's really about uh, delivering great performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's it's helping good leaders to be great leaders mm-hmm. and that's something I really love doing. Okay, so in your mind, what's the difference between coaching and mentoring then? Um, I feel that uh, mentoring is is more general and and about you know how to navigate the politics mm-hmm. and 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 maybe really just someone to um, bounce ideas off. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, for me, coaching is around specifically performance okay. right. improvement, performance delivery. Yeah. Okay. And 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 maybe even delivering specific things. So a right. bit like you know with a football coach, yes. it is about coaching the team to win the game. Sure. So that's how I see right. I see coaching. Yeah, I have a, a lot of people uh, on the podcast who are being coached or have been coached uh, and others who are coaches and mentors. And I suppose, as I understand it, typically mentoring is uh, done by somebody who's been there before and is talking from their own experience. And as you say, it's more of a, a sounding board, whereas coaches aren't necessarily somebody who's work, walked in the coachee's shoes before, but they have a very specific practical methodology that they apply in order to get best performance. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I guess if you describe it like that, the the work that Merrick does is a combination of right. the two because sure. it is about, as I said, CEO to CEO yeah. Yeah. or senior executive to mm-hmm. senior executive. Okay. And Merrick, yes. were there a US firm, are they? Or? They're a global firm. They have uh, practices in the UK, the okay. US and Australia. Right. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, I suppose if anybody's listening and uh, they might have an appetite to talk to Kathy about uh, your services in that regard, I'm, I'm sure you'd be happy to hear from them. Yes, indeed. All they right. can find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> good stuff. Good on LinkedIn. All right, so let's go back to uh, where it all began. And uh, you've mm. started to talk a little bit about it already, but tell us about you know where you were born and early life, mum, dad, brothers and sisters and so on. Yep. Uh, grew up in Brisbane, in, in Ascot, okay. went to Ascot State School. Uh, one brother, one sister, both younger than me, so yeah. I was Miss Bossy Boots. Okay. And uh, Dad was a doctor, Mum was a nurse when they met, but of course once they got married sure. she had to give up her her employment, right? Uh, which is another reason why it's great to be involved with UN Women. Uh-huh. Um, was she a bit remorseful about that? Uh, look, yeah, later in her life she actually... Um, established her own business. Well, she started working at a nursery, a garden okay. nursery. Right. And then she uh, established her own business in landscape gardening. Right. And wrote books on what to plant where in oh, Brisbane. Okay. So, um, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. So I uh, grew up, went to Ascot School, and then uh, and then uh, working through any part of high school or just being... Uh, yeah, I went to... Um, Brisbane Girls Grammar, uh-huh. which was great. I, I loved school, mm-hmm. absolutely loved school. And I I had glandular fever in the last, in grade 11, I guess. Right. Um, and I spent a lot of that time just reading books. I used to read all the books in the library on ancient history, on okay. chemistry, history of chemistry, physics, right. all of that sort of stuff. Loved it. Uh, but in towards the end of school, I did have a job as a hairdressing assistant. Okay. And I was actually offered a um, an apprenticeship. Right. As a hairdresser, uh-huh. I decided that that wasn't really what I no. what well, I wanted to do. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it. Uh, no. But, uh, oh, well, that's interesting. And so uh, you're in the salon what sweeping up the hair and yes, making yeah. cups of tea and, and washing what? people's hair oh really sometimes that was rather unpleasant yeah i'm sure <laughs> but uh, so, i mean when i was at university i was a theater orderly oh. and i used to have to prepare people oh, for their operations oh, so i think yeah. you know when you're that intimately involved with somebody you know it, it does give you some good skills doesn't it yes right yes. And so uh, it's okay. And then uh, off to university, no yep. doubt at UQ. That's right. Okay. Yep. And to study what? 
Well, I I put on my, uh, I think it was a QTAC form, my first preference. Towards the end, I decided I wanted to do medicine. Okay. And I think it was a bit of following in the family tradition. Right. And, yeah. And I missed out on medicine. I got the TE score, but I'm, I was at the bottom of the, okay, sure. that rank. Mm-hmm. And so I just missed out and got into engineering instead. Right. So I had been thinking about doing industrial chemistry mm-hmm. or something to do with chemistry. And then UQ ran a one-day school in chemical engineering. Okay. And I was able to go to that. And, and that was really fa- a fantastic introduction because I really... So that was before finishing high school? Yeah. Right. It was yeah, a bit of when a, I was, an intro. That's right. Yeah, okay. Um, it was for um, uh, school schools with chemistry, physics, maths yeah. too, and, okay. and for the top students in okay. those courses right. um, to go and find out about engineering. Right. So, and I imagine uh, there weren't too many uh, female uh, colleagues going through the course with you at the time. No. When I started, there were 200 first years, right. 20 women. Wow. And when I graduated, about 100 of that 200 graduated and 10 women. Okay. Um, when I went into second year ChemEng, there were two girls in a class of 22. Wow, okay. But but we didn't know that there was a difference then. Okay. You know, in first year, you kind of noticed that there were a lot of blokes around. Sure. And they all knew your name and you didn't know their <laughs> name. And it was just, that was a bit annoying. But, right. But it, once... Once we went into chemical engineering in second year with a small class, mm. I didn't feel any different to anyone else sure. in the class. And it wasn't until I graduated and I wasn't getting jobs, one of my classmates said to me, Kath, you're not getting a job because you're a girl. Right. And I said, well, what, what's that got to do with it? You know, I'd, he and I had passed and failed the same exams. Sure. I mean, it was... I, it, it was a real, that was a real shock. And do you and think I, that was true? Were you just a bit naive about the sort of the um, the discrimination or was yeah. he making something out of nothing? No, no, I, th- I think he was right. right. And I think, um, but discrimination wasn't a term that was even coined back no, then. Sure. You know, we didn't talk about it. Yeah. And, but I went to interviews where, um, I was told if you were a man, we'd give you the job right now. Right. You're not the. They told you that to your face. They, and they said oh, wow. it was. It. I mean, look, maybe I remember this not quite perfectly, but right. this is what I heard them say. Um, we're not worried that you would seduce our operators, but we're worried that the operators' wives would think that you'd be seducing their husbands on night shift. Yeah. And I was, you know, I don't know, uh, maybe 20. Right. And these guys were 30, 40. Right. But I, you know, I just thought it was like, why would I even be interested? Sure. Um, so that was, that was the first one. And then another one um, I was interviewed and they said, we had a female engineer once. She got pregnant and left. Right. And that was like, uh, therefore, all women are going to do right. the same, so we're not going to employ you. Yeah, right. Wow. Yeah. And so, um, uh, uh, I'm interested, just before we get to talk more about that, I mean, at the same time, you joined the Army Reserve. So, you know, yes. you were a, a glutton for uh, you well, know, being in these environments, it I sounds was, like. I was lucky with the, when I, I went to the Officer Cadet Training Unit at Wakehall um, for the Army Reserve. And we had a really large cohort of women. Okay. I think we had at least a third, oh, maybe really? more than that, wow. of, of women in our course. Okay. So that's critical mass. Sure. And it meant that we could support each other and 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 we didn't feel that we were um, picked on. In fact, oh, the sort of honour did go to a man, but it went very close to going to a woman. The which, sorry? The sort of honour. Oh, the sort of honour. So the honor. top student. Okay, right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but yeah, that was, I still keep in touch with some of my colleagues uh-huh. from those days. In fact, we're having a reunion in October. Well, you were there for, lovely. what, uh, over 20 years? Well, yes, but I was actually at Octu for, that was 20 months. Right. And then I moved to Melbourne okay, and sure. Perth. And, yeah, yeah. But, but what that provided me was kind of an instant family. Because right. Because you'd meet people, you'd yeah. go to a new unit, army unit, and meet people, you'd go to the officer's mess, mm-hmm. and they'd say, come over for a barbecue or okay. whatever. And it was kind of a, because mm-hmm. you you went out and did things and that pushed you out of your comfort zone mm-hmm. all the time mm. with these people. You got to know people really well. Mm-hmm. 
quickly. Okay. So, so uh, back to you finish uni, you're out there, you're applying for jobs, you're being sounds like treating treated pretty appallingly. Yep. So w- what did that instill in you in terms of you know your mindset moving forward? Um, I'm not sure it made a had a big impact back then, but what it made me do is look for opportunities. Okay. And I went back to the uni and said, look, I'm not getting a job. I'm I'm on the dole. Can I do some unpaid work around the the Department of Chemical Engineering? And mm-hmm. they all sort of cheered and said, okay. yeah, of course. And I actually went around and interviewed all the the uh, heads of the, the the at the school to find out what projects they had that I could work on. Right, yeah. And I got involved at that point in the Chemical Engineering Conference, the okay. annual Australasian ChemEng Conference called Chemica. Mm-hmm. And I, I took over running the trade show, so I had to cold call all these industrial organisations yeah. and say, do you want to stand in the sure. trade show? Yeah. And it was the first time ever that the trade show and the conference made a profit. Okay. So uh, it was great. I mean, I'd right. obviously made a difference. And and out of that came an offer to go and work at Melbourne Uni on the proviso that I'd help them run Chemica right. in but, Melbourne but a, the following year. on a year. salary rather than yes. free. Right, yeah. okay. So I went yeah. as a laboratory manager okay, basically sure. in the ChemEng department. Right. And did that start, you know, your percolating business interest? Right. Well, and what it did was I met all these eminent chemical engineers from around Australia and New Zealand and and globally as well. Mm -hmm. So um, the following year in Melbourne, I ran the conference. Um, It was again successful and I was offered a a job with, oh no, that was the year after. I I was asked to come over to Perth the following year to help them run Chemica. So okay. I was actually seconded from Melbourne Uni right. to what was WAIT, WA Institute of Technology, and became Curtin Uni mm-hmm. the following year and helped them run Chemica. And and that was my full-time role there. Right. I was kind of the conference secretariat. Okay. Yeah. And at that one, I was offered a job with Foxborough, who were an mm-hmm. instrumentation process mm-hmm. control mm-hmm. company as a sales engineer. Okay, right. And I... I took that. So, so that was probably about two or three years post graduation. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. And that was yeah. in WA. That was in Perth. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I kind of I really liked Perth. Uh, Melbourne I found pretty cold and wet mm-hmm. and grey and right. Not not as friendly. Not like Brisbane. Right. And Perth was much more like Brisbane. Sure. Um, so Just lots more flies. Yeah. If <laughs> <laughs> I remember. And the sunset into the sea instead yeah, yeah. of rising over the That's sea. That's right. Yeah. So I moved to Perth mm-hmm. and uh, I was with Foxborough for a couple of years. And that was interesting. I got to, I used to go to the Pilbara every couple of months and go around to um, Newman and Port Hedland and Parabadu and Tom okay. Price and, and Dampier. That was my favourite. Um, and Caratha and... Yeah, and I got involved in the, um, you know, I used to go and visit the Woodside oh, yeah. LNG plant when mm-hmm. it was being built, the okay. domestic gas plant, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. And you were so, selling instrumentation? Yeah. Right, okay. And and distributed control systems. Right, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, that was pretty good. But then they, um, they cl- Foxborough closed down in Australia okay. a couple of years later, and in the meantime, I... I just resigned to join Process Control Technology mm-hmm. as a consulting engineer. Mm-hmm. That was fun. I um, one of my favourite projects there was I I worked at Western Mining Engineering Services designing the control system for a gold plant that Alcoa were building down okay. near Boddington, mm-hmm. and then I sort of took a week off and then jumped over to Alcoa and became the commissioning engineer. Right. And so, and building this gold plant was just brilliant because it was done very quickly in about three months mm-hmm. and money was no object. Anything mm-hmm. you wanted, okay. you got it, you know, they'd put it on a truck immediately. We commissioned the plant and I, the, I saw the first gold pour mm-hmm. and this brick of gold that I, I couldn't lift because wow. it was so heavy was worth a million dollars. Right. And they were pouring two or three of those a week. Wow. So the payback on this on this plant was huge. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I was uh, talking to the CEO of a listed gold mining company the other day, and he was talking about how, you know, um, with the move away from gold, you know, uh, there is some real concern that Fort Knox may not actually have any gold in it anymore. Have you heard that? 
No, I hadn't heard that. <laughs> he, he went into a high, I don't know if it was a big conspiracy theory, but I, I found it quite fascinating. Mm. Uh, okay, great. And so, um, and then began, you know, really a lengthy career with BHP. BP. Oh, BP. 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 Yeah. Yes. Right. But, but many people get the two confused. Right, okay, sure. Yes. But yes, I joined BP in uh, Perth at Quinana Refinery. Okay. And it was in a process control um role where right. I was working on the distributed control system okay and working in the in the control room um, putting different controls on the right on the process so okay. I, it was just brilliant I mean walking through the gate there every day I used to think yay I'm working in an oil refinery because right so BPS was you know truly an employer of choice for you yeah absolutely right. okay. and as, as a chemical engineer working in an oil refinery was right. the place to be okay you know, that's where you do a lot of chemical engineering, okay. but, but classical chemical engineering. Mm-hmm. So, um, and but prior to that, I had been unemployed because I was made by, redundant by someone. And I was about to go on an army camp when they interviewed me. Okay. And they did this targeted selection interview, you know, tell us about a time when... All right. And all, the only examples I could think of were army right. examples. So yeah. I think they wrote down, you know... <laughs> wants to control the world right? Um, or something like that. Because a year after I started with BP, I got promoted mm-hmm. into a team leader role. Mm-hmm. And and that was sort of the start of my, right. my, and you, uh, my rise. ended up uh, travelling quite around the world with those yeah. guys. So I moved, um, I moved from Perth to Sydney. I ran logistics in Sydney, tank mm-hmm. farms and... and um, Four unions on three different sites. Mm-hmm. Lots of lots of industrial relations stuff. Right. Went back to Perth uh, to the laboratory manager role, and then became um, I had a commercial role, then lab manager, then an operations superintendent, which was the job I'd wanted mm-hmm. for a long mm-hmm. time. And then I went overseas into upstream um, in the UK. Ex- in the UK, okay, to this gorgeous place called Witch Farm in Dorset. And I lived in this village with the ruined castle oh, on really? the hill, and and the house I lived in had walls that were a foot thick, and the huge slabs of stone on the floor. It was just okay. fabulous. Um, but then I got sent up to Aberdeen, mm-hmm. and that was miserable. Right. Gray. Yeah. <laughs> I lived for a year in Dundee in 1978, yeah. so I know what you're talking about. So it's interesting that uh, you know at the beginning of your career. There was this, you know, real resistance to um, uh, employing, you know, female engineers, uh, which you experienced, yeah. and then suddenly now your career is, you know, moving ahead, you know, extremely well. What What do you think it was, you know, um, both in terms of your own personal characteristics and also what was changing in the the broader environment to enable that? I think. The key thing was sponsors. Okay. So people who saw my leadership capability yeah. and supported me and helped me to get okay. the next role. Right. I can certainly look back and see many instances. I mean, again, even at BP, there was a job I applied for mm-hmm. and they asked me to withdraw my application mm-hmm. because they knew if they considered it, they'd have to give me the job, but they didn't want to give it to me. Why would they have to? Because I was the best, I was the most qualified right. person for that okay. job. And and I, I look back on my career at BP and I see there was one particular refinery manager who, and I think it was, I really believe it was unconscious bias, mm-hmm. but I would, he would, you know, I'd have my career development conversation with him. He was my right. two-up. Yep. And he would say, what would you like to do? And I'd say, I'd like to be the operations manager. And he'd mm-hmm. say, oh, well, I really see you in HR or okay. HSE. And I said, but I don't have experience in those areas. I have experience sure. in operations. Right. But it was his, yeah. he just couldn't see a woman in those roles. Right. And so did you actively go out seeking your sponsors or did yeah. you, you did? Well, partly, partly they found me too. So okay. I did leadership development programs within BP and the the assessors on those programs Mm -hmm. uh, became my sponsors and helped me um, in fact I mean at one point one of them tried to poach me away from the refinery into another part of BP and that's when suddenly the refinery manager said oh all right we're going to give you a promotion so um yeah so and and I think that's that's been true. I can look back on a number mm. of 
men who mm-hmm. have been what I would call sponsors mm. who helped me to get into the the next role. Sure. And I can also look back on a number who who stopped me getting right. a promotion when all yeah. the men around me at the same level mm. had a promotion mm. who who um yeah, stopped me getting a job when mm-hmm. I was I was the most qualified. Mm-hmm. So And uh, to go a little sort of off track for the moment, but do you think that that uh, would still be endemic in organisations like a BP, for example? Yeah. I don't think it's endemic. I think it still exists in pockets, yeah. definitely. Okay. I think that the whole issue of unconscious bias, definitely, and mm. it's not just men who have unconscious bias. Sure. Women have it too. And I know that I once I learned about this, I changed the way I went into, for example, interviews, Yes. My, I would say to myself, why not a woman, okay? Right. I'm going to appoint a woman unless you can give me a good reason not to. Yeah. Because I feel that, you know, if we, if we appointed 80% women into all roles for the next 10 years, we'd still be struggling to mm. address the imbalance mm. in leadership. Mm. Um, and I'm not at all condoning, you know, appointing someone who's not not qualified yeah, or, yeah. or the best person right. for the job. Sure. But I think, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell's book, um, was it Blink? He talks about the New York Symphony yes. when they changed the way they interviewed people mm-hmm. and they, they put the people behind a screen okay. so they couldn't actually see who they right. were listening to uh-huh. and they t- got them to take their shoes off so right. they couldn't listen and say, you know, as, have, have they got high heels on okay, or whatever. Right. So they couldn't, they did not know whether it was a man or a woman. Right. And they they started appointing a lot more women. Mm. And they the, still do blind auditions to this day. The precursor for The Voice. Yes. <laughs> That's yeah. obviously where that came yeah. from. It's interesting. I've, I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but uh, I went to a gender diversity debate um, and afterwards, I went back and I analysed four C-suite roles that we'd recruited the month prior, of which three were in not-for-profit. Mm-hmm. They were all C-suite. Across the four vacancies, there were 800 unique applicants. Only 7% were women. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, so I think there needs to be a lot more to encourage women yeah. to take the risk of applying for a role that they don't necessarily feel fully qualified for because I can say in 98% of instances where I'm being briefed by a client, they say we would love a woman, Yeah, you know? So uh, I think a lot of the sort of historical uh, uh, gender bias is actually not there anymore, but I think there's still a a mindset that needs to be be changed. I absolutely agree with that, I think. And I... I find it in myself, right? I'll I'll be asked to join a new board and then I'll immediately have these doubts. They're going to find out I'm a fraud. They're going to, right. you know, well, they're they going to realise... they only want me because I'm a woman. No, not, not so much that now. Okay. That's obvious when that happens. Right. Yeah. But it's just, it's a personal sure. lack of confidence. Yeah. And all I need to do is talk to a friend who says, oh, don't be silly, Cathy. You know, you've, you've got all the experience. You've yeah. got the knowledge. You've got the commitment. You mm. you know, you'll be terrific at it. And I right. say, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, you're right. But what I think we need to think about is we know that women and men are different. And I think we do need to go out and tap women on the shoulder more and yeah. say, you've got the track record, you should be applying for this. Sure. And, and rather than, um, you know, often a woman will be offered a promotion, for mm-hmm, example, mm-hmm. and she'll say, oh, do you really think I'm ready? Mm. And if you're not on your, your toes, you might say, oh, all right, well, we'll wait a few months and they'll give the job to a man. Mm. What you need to say is, yeah, I think you're ready, you've got the track record, and yeah. we'll support you. Mm. And and just they, we just need a bit of a boost every sure. now and then. So I, I would guess that a lot of men also are thinking, when will they work out that I'm a fraud? Uh, you know, I, I don't think that's unique just to women. Yeah. But uh, that's interesting. Okay, so you're in the UK, uh, you're, you go to Aberdeen, you know, yeah. and then the next role was really, you know, a big one for you or something. Well, yeah, actually the, the next one after the next one. So okay. I moved to London back into refining okay. into a cushy head office job, which right. was fabulous. Yeah. But what I did um, 
was what I was working on was the future of our refinery in Turkey. Right. So BP had inherited, we owned a 14% share. We inherited Mobil's share when the BP Mobil European JV mm-hmm. dissolved. And suddenly they owned the majority of this refinery in the south of Turkey in Mersin, mm-hmm. which is a two hour flight and then a two hour drive from mm-hmm. Istanbul. Um, it, it was very basic. It needed a lot of money to invest to bring it up to the, the new specs. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, the Turkish government had invested in their government-owned refineries, billions. Right. So there was no way this was ever going to be mm-hmm. competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd been to Turkey. I'd gone out there every month for about a year. And then the refinery manager breached a safety rule um, and was summarily dismissed. Okay. Partly because he... He argued about it. Right. You know, he it was clear he'd done something wrong. Sure. And he, instead of saying, you know, mea culpa, he he argued. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I they asked me to go in at a week's notice. I arrived in t- Istanbul um, to fly to Mersin, and that was the day the HSBC buildings and the British consulate were bombed. Okay. So that was an interesting time sure. to arrive in Turkey. And I I tell you what, looking at Istanbul Airport last week, I mean, I. I must have flown in and out of there 40 times mm-hmm. at least. Mm-hmm. So I went down to the refinery as as um, general manager, refinery manager, but still leading the project about what are we going to do. Mm. Uh, and it was it was a fantastic job. It was uh, it was really. Uh, it was exhausting because all of my direct reports spoke English as a second language. Right. And after a few mishaps or miscommunications, some mm. of which were hilarious and some of which were pretty upsetting, mm-hmm. I realised the need to really check for understanding right. when I communicated something and when they talk, talk to me. Mm. You know, you're always... And you couldn't you couldn't just talk like I'm talking now. Sure. You had to really think about not using slang words, yeah. not, not using, you know, words that I would use right. with my family or whatever that... They would understand. Right. And were any so, of your reports women or were they all men? Uh, no, they were all men. I right. had a, um, I was lucky I had a PA who'd lived in America for a while, so okay. she spoke very good English. Right. Um, uh, and what yeah, was their attitude towards having well, a female boss? Actually, I think the fact that I was from BP was okay. what was most important. And okay. that was true of people around the refinery. Mm-hmm. One of the things I loved about working in Turkey is that you did not, you know, you'd arrive in the morning, you'd go around, shake hands with everybody or kiss everybody. Yeah. Hello. Um, when you had a meeting, I remember a big meeting with the, the kind of federal union talking about, I can't even remember, it must have been the, the um, upcoming agreement. Uh-huh. Um, you go into the meeting, you shake hands with everyone in the room. Right. And then everybody gets a drink. So a, a glass of water, a cup of tea, sure. a lemonade, whatever. Yeah. And when you sit down to have the meeting, I mean, I think that whole shaking hands with people is you recognise the humanity mm. in each other. Mm. So it's it's more difficult to sit there and treat people like the enemy. Right. Um, I, I found that really good. And in fact, when I left, the union presented me with a, a traditional Turkish sweets bowl oh, yeah. which i still have okay. at home in right. quite a place because it was it was different to dealing with unions in australia sure and so you know going back to your comment about uh a female is offered a role and she says oh you know i might not be ready i mean that was a big job um yeah what in terms of your own introspection at the time where did you see the gaps for yourself that you needed to work on in order to successfully get the outcomes required that's a really insightful question because I hadn't really thought about that. I did not hesitate for a second. Right. I knew that I had the appropriate experience and the ability to mm-hmm. do that job mm-hmm. and particularly to close the site down, which was what okay. we thought we were going to do yeah. um, better than anybody else. Right. Because I'd in Sydney, I'd, I'd actually had to close three terminals yeah. and make people redundant and... And so I knew how to deal with people mm-hmm. in a compassionate way mm-hmm. and help them to find the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew 
how to run a refinery or I knew enough about sure. refineries to, yeah. to be able to run it. So, um, But you're a but long way you from know, your support base. Yeah, you know, yeah. You're really, you know, running point I, on this. I know process. what the difference was. Right. I did a leadership program in 2002 when I was in Aberdeen uh-huh. and, and uh, that changed my life. Really? That changed my leadership capability. Okay. In what way? Um, in the way that I, I dealt with people. So mm-hmm. I became better at listening and better at seeing the leadership in others rather okay. than having background conversations about this guy's a jerk. Okay. And then you, you just subconsciously right. look for um, evidence that someone's yeah, a jerk. Yeah. If, you, if you put a new background conversation, I'm gonna see the leader in this person, mm-hmm. you'd see their leadership That's ideas, or I'm going to listen for insights, or, and I mean, there was, that was just a little part of the technology, but mm-hmm. it was, um, it really did change my life. And the other thing that, that helped was that as a result of that program, you get coaching for life. Right. What I did actually, though, when I went to Turkey was I, I, so I'd been working on, with my coach on becoming a in the BP terms, a bull, a business unit leader. Okay. I wanted. I knew that that's where I wanted to be. Right. I wanted to be the business unit leader mm-hmm. at, at the Brisbane refinery. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I spoke to her and I talked about what I was doing, it would be, well, what would a, a bull do? Right. How are you behaving like a bull? And was she I, an internal employee of VP? Or no, no. She worked for the JMW, the organisation that did the leadership program. Right. okay. And so when I went to Turkey, I actually paid her um, mm-hmm. as a you know a high level coach yeah. to coach me around mm-hmm. what I was going to do, um, and that made that made all the difference. Okay, you know it really um, it gave me. I had as I said, I hadn't didn't have a second's hesitation in saying, yeah, I'm the right person to do that job. Okay, that's probably the only time. Oh no, the sec- the next time was when I was offered the. Um, the bull roll at the Brisbane refinery. Right. So I again I knew that sure. I was the right person for that, that So job. you completed the project in Turkey. Yeah. And then great opportunity to come home. Yes. Right. Can I have I got time to tell a couple oh, of Oh you've got plenty of time. I don't mind stories. how long we've okay. So I I've got um uh, a story about going to Turkey. So my team that I worked with in, in London said we're gonna take you out for a farewell lunch mm-hmm. and we went to the Connaught Hotel which okay. I think was where Gordon Ramsay started okay. but there was a female chef there and we had a table of six or seven of us a big round table and we had this degustation menu mm-hmm. and we had wonderful wines and it was just divine anyway we're in the in a black cab on our way to the Connaught Hotel and we go past Buckingham Palace right and I said Oh, yeah, Bex is getting his OBE today. David right. Beckham yeah. was being awarded the OBE. Yeah. And I said, what's he done to deserve an OBE? And all the, they, were, they were all men in the taxi. Right. They were all like, oh, he's been so wonderful. He's got kids to play sport and he's, right. you know, he's terrific and he's been so good for the England team and blah, blah, blah. So I thought, oh, yeah, all right. Anyway, <laughs> we, after lunch, we're coming, coming out of the private room at the back where we'd had our lunch. And, and who should be there but David Beckham. Right. And and one of his kids, Romeo, I think, right. and another man. And, and Beckham's got his morning suit on and the OBE okay. on his lapel. Right. And as I said, I'd had a few drinks and I had my camera with me because right. it was a farewell lunch. And, and I said, oh, I'm going to get a photo with him. Right. And one of the guys said, oh, I'll take your photo. So we go over and ask if we can have a photo. And he said yes. And then we, we see the OBE and we say, oh, congratulations. And Shuggy said, you could tell he was absolutely chuffed right. about the OBE. As you would be. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And um, I have this fabulous photo of me with David Beckham. Right. Um, and it was just, you know. Right. And I became a huge fan from that minute on. Oh, you didn't say to him, look. What did you do to deserve no, that, No, I didn't. I said congratulations. <laughs> right. And he said, thank you. In his squeaky voice. Yes. But he is, he was absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. Right. And he had a diamond <laughs> earring the size of my, my, I guess, my thumbnail oh, almost. Really? I mean, right. it's huge. But, yeah, so that was really nice. He's done well for himself. He has. Yeah, but he's, you know, I think he's worked for it. And oh, sure. has, has posh, you yeah. know. 
Without a doubt. Yes. Uh, okay, so um, back to Brisbane. Yeah, well, I've got another story about okay. Turkey. All so right. when we shut the refinery down, um, I, look, it's a long story and I'll shorten it but just by saying we had a tank fire, full surface tank fire, and I became the incident commander for this okay. massive fire that burned for three days. Right. Um, and it was the most frightening thing I've ever seen in my life. I was so worried that people were going to get hurt, that mm-hmm. the fire was going to escalate. Um, and how's that happen? How does a fire like that start? It happened because um, in the past, uh, because the refinery was unsure of its future, they had failed to maintain this okay. tank properly. And yeah. what what really caused it was the change in operations. So mm-hmm. because we were shutting down, this tank normally just was filled and emptied at the same okay. time yeah. so the level didn't change okay. we filled it right up and then we were lowering it so it just changed the operation of the okay. tank yeah. and um, and that caused a spark and then because it, it normally you'd put out the rim seal fire but because it hadn't been maintained the pontoons caught on fire and and it, the it only burned. way yeah the only way it was ever going to get put out was to burn itself out it had um uh, naphtha in it so we had um we had a number of uh issues around was it going to crude tanks can boil over where okay. which can cause a massive rupture immediately mm-hmm. so we were we were worried about was the tank going to rupture but the other thing that happened was we didn't shut the front gate um and we had 11 fire brigades turn up okay. from all over the region right. so we had like half a dozen were forest firefighting okay. teams and others were, and they all just wanted to charge in and right and it took us a few hours to actually get them all under control mm. get one of our guys with them with a radio mm-hmm. and get them all so we had the forest fighting firefighting units um around the grassy areas so mm-hmm. when when the grass caught on yeah. fire they put that sure. out we had others cooling adjacent right. tanks and the wind swung around right. almost 360 during the the couple of days it burned i suppose they all wanted to play because it was exciting yeah. for them to get oh, to yeah. you know they'd done all this training oh and they wanted gosh. to do it properly it was so it was so hot near the near the tank you really couldn't get close to it mm-hmm. um and the smoke was black mm-hmm. and the the whole of the sky over Mersin became black mm-hmm. for two days right. and, and then we got the um air force the u.s air force um team from the interlake air force base which was about an hour and a half's drive away they came in with a foam monitor okay. we had foam they had foam but if you mix two types of foam right. they become ineffective okay but at times we had a foam blanket on the top which was really nice because it meant you had very little smoke it was a lot cooler mm-hmm. um but then in the end we knew we were going to run out of foam because mm-hmm. there was fire still burning in the curled over edges of the tank. So mm-hmm. well, I had the uh, fire chief of BP, who was a bit of a red adair. He, he'd actually flown into Georgia. What's a red adair? Oh, red adair's the guy who goes and puts out the oil well oh, fires right. in, okay. Okay. in the Middle East. Right. So he's a bit of a legend. Okay. Um, anyway, so this guy, came. he'd flown into Georgia and the head of... BP Upstream had flown into Ankara in the corporate jet that right. day. So he was able to send the corporate jet to go and pick up okay. the fire chief to come down and he arrived at midnight um, to provide uh-huh. advice. But basically he said what I'd done had was the correct right. correct thing and he was the one who in the end said, you know, we're, we're going to have to just let it burn out. The only injury was the fire chief, our fire chief, right. um, at the site got huge blisters on the back of his ankles because he put his bunker boots on without socks. <laughs> and, I mean, I couldn't believe that was the only injury. Right. But the whole, um, you know, you do all this training for right. incidents, and I'd done it a number of times, but sure. it all goes out the window. I mean, I'm sitting in the, the disaster management room. There's not a pen, there's not a whiteboard marker, there's no computers, right. there's no, and there's no people. And so for the first couple of hours I was trying to sort of manage this because all of my team management team had gone out onto the site to mm. try and grab hold of these these um, communi- um, um, municipal 
firefighting yeah, teams. Sure. So it was, yeah, it was an amazing, scary experience. But I suppose... But uh, a good outcome. Yeah, and, uh, you know, in terms of your role, uh, something which not everybody would want to experience, but at least it gave you the opportunity to test your metal, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. And so the plant... Um, Subsequently, was you saw it right through to being shut down? Yeah, it was shutting down at okay. the time. Yeah. I left um, once it was shut down and made safe. Right. I left and, and it was then handed over to a, a demolition team right. or a team that they converted it to a big terminal. So okay. some of the tanks right. are still in use. Okay. Yeah. And then back to Brisbane. And then I came to Brisbane. Was and that I, fortuitous and that, that just happened to be available at the time? or I, you, It wasn't available You were seeking to come back. I, they knew that that's what I wanted to right. do. Yeah. I was. I actually came home for a holiday and was having coffee with mum and, and the uh, refinery manager at Bulwa Island rang me up and said, I've got a job offer for you. Right. And because my boss in London hadn't told me about it, I just wasn't sure what was going on. Yeah. Anyway, he offered me this role as asset manager, which had operations and maintenance reporting to me. Mm-hmm. Basically, a made-up role to understudy right. him. Okay. And then I rang my boss at, in London that night, and he said, yeah, basically, if you don't stuff up, you'll be taking over from him in right. 12 to 18 months. Okay, yeah. And it, it, six months later, I actually took over from him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Best job I ever had right toughest job um, you know it was but it was just fantastic and what I what I did in that role or what I so I took over a, a team that were didn't even want to call themselves necessarily a team and they really worked in silos they they sort of played off against each other mm-hmm. you know operations would say no we're not going to give you that pump because We'd, we need the availability, right. whereas maintenance is saying, well, you know, if we don't fix it now, it's going to break. And and it was just, it, it wasn't mm-hmm. a very well-functioning team. Sure. So I had a coach again working with me and and we worked with my team to create an extraordinary leadership team of extraordinary leaders. Mm-hmm. And it took us about 18 months to, or at least 12 months to actually get us to that point where everybody was aligned that we were an extraordinary leadership team of extraordinary leaders and Mm -hmm. we wanted to create an extraordinary organization and at the beginning of the following year we were talking about so we had our our um, uh, performance contract with my boss we knew what we had to deliver but we said all right so yeah we've got to do all that but what else would we like to do Mm -hmm. and we decided that we wanted to focus on leadership development Mm -hmm. and actually we created and led a leadership development program for all the superintendents who were my direct reports reports right uh the first one so i had morning tea with the superintendents in different groups and said all right so first things you need to know is this is mandatory and they get this oh we can't give up two days of month and i said that's okay um i said and this is not about, you know, we're not asking you to step up to the plate or any of those other metaphors. I said, actually, you're already at the plate. You're right. in a leadership role. What we're going to do is give you the bat. We're going sure. to give you some tools. Okay. And and at the end, you can choose whether you want to be a leader or not. Right. And if you choose not to be a leader, then we'll have a conversation about that. But yeah. what we want to do is help you to do your job. Sure. And at the end of the first two days, everybody was like, that was just amazing it was the best two days i'd ever spent and was this uh uh content what had come out of the leadership development work you'd done years earlier most of it was yeah so and a number of the other leadership team members had done a similar program yeah but also i had my coach coaching me to coach my team yeah so it was really uh but it was just phenomenal and at the end of um the third session they stood up, 40 people stood up and individually committed to being an extraordinary leadership okay. team of extraordinary leaders, right. creating an extraordinary organisation. And for the next two years, we delivered absolutely outstanding record performance. And this was in your role looking after the refinery or when you I was stepped the, up to executive director for Australia? No, I was the business unit leader of right. the refinery. Okay, sure. Um, I was executive director for BP Australasia at the same time. Oh, so I that see. was a, okay. that was part of right. 
part of. So sure. the two refinery managers and the marketing okay. head and a couple of other people were part of the executive sure. for BP Australasia. Okay. And so what um, happened in 2010 for you to then, you know, have a fairly radical, you know, reconsideration of your career? It, uh, it had been coming for a little while. So BP had the Texas City incident just before I became the bull. Mm-hmm. And that that created a real knee-jerk reaction to risk management mm-hmm. and a lot of mandates. And we could see that if we kept doing all this risk reduction work that was costing a lot of money but had no payback, um, and we knew that margins were going to go down again right. because that's what they do in refining, they go sure. up and down. Yeah. Um, we were really struggling to see how the business was going to mm-hmm. continue. Um, there was... There was not a, there was a lot of telling us how to do things and not a lot of listening to right. what the impact of that was going to be on us mm-hmm. and and the fact that we couldn't really operate a business effectively doing all this extra stuff that sure. didn't add any value. So I'd been uh, feeling yeah. a bit frustrated about that. Oh, and my so my boss's boss had changed, and okay. he my boss then. He was a non-refiner. And so my boss was spending all his time with him trying to, yeah, managing upwards and had less time to Mm -hmm. support me and my colleagues. Mm -hmm. Um, And I could see, and and John Brown had left BP. So BP had changed. Mm -hmm. um, And I could see where I could, I I started to get more interested in the gender equity Mm -hmm. issues. And I could see that whenever I visited another refinery, the women all wanted to talk to me. How did you do it? Right, you know, sure. And there was this real hunger there for um, wanting to get promoted and, mm-hmm. and wanting to see career opportunities that just weren't materialising. And I would sit in um, conversations with my other, the other bulls from around the, the world and we'd talk about you know the top people and who should be promoted, etc. And without a doubt, without a you know, every single time we talked about a woman, she was described as aggressive. Right. So if she had leadership qualities, she mm-hmm. was aggressive, mm-hmm. whereas the men were assertive. Okay. And so um, it just highlighted this unconscious bias thing mm-hmm. to me. So I really, I really wanted to do more work in that space. Okay. Um, uh, I did get offered a six-month role with BP to work on gender equity, okay. but I didn't think six months was going to sure. really uh, mm-hmm. make a difference. And I didn't feel that they were really committed to it okay. at that time too. So it it kind of um, – I got to the point where I couldn't see a role I wanted with BP. They couldn't see me in a role. Yeah. And so it was a kind of a mutual okay. parting of the ways. All right. And then into more of a portfolio. Yeah. Right? And in the meantime, I'd been on the board of New Zealand Refining Company mm-hmm. since I just after I became the bull, and that's mm-hmm. when I first did the AICD okay. um, company director's sure. course. Um, so that was really interesting. Mm. Uh, they were a listed company in New Zealand, but the majority shareholding was owned by the four oil companies mm-hmm. that processed mm-hmm. um, crude through and, and got the products from the refinery. Uh, but that was a great great introduction to a listed okay. board environment and the chairman of that company kept encouraging me to mm-hmm. you know go and become a mm. professional ned so i took six months off when i left bp and went around the world and really just just really thought about what do i want to do yeah and then came back and started to build my portfolio mm-hmm. okay so. and and so what would you say have been some of the uh, the challenges you've found in moving from, no doubt, an extremely busy, um, ferocious executive responsibility yeah. into, you know, uh, rebuilding your career from a non-executive director point of view. Yeah. You know, what, what sort of things have it, you had to do? It is build? interesting. You go from being someone who's seen as important sure. to being a nobody again, right? Uh, which was a bit, of a bit of a shock. And people that I thought were friends turned out to be only interested in me because of my role. Right. So that was a that was an interesting uh, transition. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I, the biggest difference for me between the executive role and the non-exec role is that as an executive you can make a difference every day. Right. And it's difficult as mm-hmm. a non-exec. You can make a difference to 
individuals within mm-hmm. the organisation and maybe to to you contribute to the direction of mm-hmm. the organisation, but it's not the same as being mm-hmm. an executive. And I do miss that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still, you know, if the right executive role came along, okay. um, I would definitely be right. interested. Okay, sure. So, yeah. so if you look to the future now, um, you know, the next five or so years, uh, I mean, you've really got a foot in both camps yep. then build an executive, uh, build out a uh, portfolio career, inclusive of coaching slash mentoring, or get back into a full-time gig. Yeah. Right. Yeah, well, that's, um, I mean, there's no right answer, is there? No. Right. And would you go and live um, internationally again if you needed to for work? Uh, Yes, I would. My preference right now would be to stay in Brisbane. Okay. But... But, yeah, for the right job okay. and the right place, yeah. Sure. I would. Okay, great. Now, the majority of people who listen to this podcast are aspiring uh, C-suite executives and non-executive directors. So if you needed to, you know, summarise, you know, all of the wisdom that you've gathered over all the years <laughs> into a few, you know, key learnings that uh, you could, uh, you know, use this as an opportunity to pass through, what would be some of the things you'd say? Um Get out of your comfort zone okay. every day. Right. Uh, look for opportunities where you might not expect them to come right. from. Do you think most people do get out of their comfort zone or not? No, I think a lot of people don't. Right. I think a lot of people... Even at a senior executive uh, If you're good, if you're a good leader and if you're a good senior executive, yeah, you do get out of your okay. comfort zone. Yeah. But but no, I still see a lot of people who've been people who've been promoted because of their technical competency yeah. or or mm. abilities, or even just because they've been there for so long. They, you see less of that now, but yeah, you still see senior execs who who play a safe bat. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you get out of your comfort zone. What else? Um, for me, having a coach to help me. Sure figure out A, where I want to go, and then mm-hmm. how I'm going to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it, it, again, it comes from that leadership program, but standing in the future and being bold about where you want to be. Mm. So for me, in 2002, I created a future where I was the business unit leader at Bulwer Island Refinery. Right. And that was my that was the future I wanted to live into. And then sure. I worked with my coach. Right. And it happened a lot sooner than I thought it was going to. Yeah, which is uh, often the case. Mm. Mm. It is. It's a bit like the you know the power of positive thinking sure. and stuff like that. You start to put thoughts into the universe yeah. and stuff materializes. But I suppose, it? I mean, it's all well and good to have this positive affirmation, but it, you've done the work to create the actions to enable exactly. the result. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and and the thing about my coaches and the way I coach is not letting people off the hook. Mm. So if someone has committed to, for example, being the bull of Bulwer Island and, and, and I'm talking to my coach and I'm whinging about something and she would say, well, is that how a bull would behave? You right. know, is that, is that going to get you to where you want to go? Okay. And, and all right, so what are the actions you're going to complete this week? Who are you going to have conversations right. with? What about, what's the outcome you mm-hmm. want from those conversations? So some um, tough love. Yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So I, th- I think that's the, the, um, the keys sure. for me. Is okay, to, excellent. To, yeah, right. make a stand for something and then and then work mm-hmm. towards it. And just to wrap it up, we've spoken a lot about business today and uh, and we've uh, spoken a little bit about what you enjoy doing in your time off being going to see the Reds play, but yeah. what are some of the other things that uh, you do outside of work to keep uh, you energised and, and refreshed and so on? Um, I like to swim. Okay. Um, in summer and in winter when the heated pool's working. Right. So, yep, that's... that's uh, that's good. I love going to the opera and the ballet, okay. um, the races. Right. You know, doing things like that, and I really and hanging out with my family. My brother and sister are both in Canberra, so right. I like catching up with them. And in fact, my brother and his family are going to be here this week, staying okay. with me. So. Have you been yeah. offered uh, an opportunity to join a board of a uh, art space not for profit like ballet? Or... Oh, I'm on the foundation committee for the Queensland Art Gallery okay. and Goma. Yeah. Right. Oh, so, great. Yeah. I'm and how is that? That must be quite interesting. It is. It is. And I mean, the foundation is about fundraising. Sure. So yeah. it's figuring out how. And I think what I really bring to that 
that committee is that I'm one of the little donors as opposed to some of the people right. on that committee donate sure. millions. Yep. Um, you know, like Tim Fairfax is just incredible, the amount he supports yeah. a number of different arts okay. organisations. So I think I can I can bring the the little donors right. viewpoint because you never know when a little donor is going to turn into a big donor. Sure. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think um, you want to enable people who have a passion for the arts to contribute at whatever Absolutely. level is um, yeah. appropriate for them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great, Cathy. Look, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, I'm sure you've got a busy day. So uh, let's wrap it up there and uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Richard. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Cathy. I certainly did. She was a great guest, and I'm really looking forward to having more female, both C-suite executives and non-executive directors to bring to you over the coming weeks and months. Have a fantastic week, and I look forward to having you back along to another episode of the RHA podcast in the future. Yeah.